Hello, welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. Is that particular good? Not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. We're coming to you today live from St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry in Rochester, New York. I'm Charles Hughes Huff. I'm an assistant professor of sacred scripture. And today I'm talking with uh, Dr. Nancy Hawkins, professor of theology here at St. Bernard's. Welcome, Nancy. I'm happy to be here, Charles. Today we're going to talk to Nancy about Dorothy Zola. The topic of her research through much of her grad school life and, and thereafter, and uh, a fascinating mystical liberation theologian. Is that an accurate uh, representation, Nancy? I guess we'll get to that. Well, technically, she's a political theologian. However, uh, she would say of herself that my political theology is a theology of liberation. But political theology was established in Europe and liberation theology was established in Central and South America around the same time. Yeah. But she really used the term political theology most of her life. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, could you sort of set us up um, with who she was? Mm-hmm. You know, she's uh, in Europe. Well, who was she and how, how did that play out in her theology? Dorothy Sola grew up in the 1930s in Cologne, She grew up in a liberal Protestant household. She had an extensive classical education. Her father was a lawyer. Uh, She had some uh, brothers and sisters. She was exposed to literature, art, culture. I mean, she studied philosophy when she was in ninth grade. And, uh, of course, during those years, the Second World War began. And when she thinks about that time... She says it was a reality defined by hunger, bombing, coldness, and need. Mm. And it was also a spiritually ruined landscape. Mm. So her family had to move out of their home in the suburbs of Cologne. I'm not exactly sure where they went, but because Cologne was being bombed. And they uh, hid a... Jewish girl in their attic for a while, mm-hmm. and so it was. It was very. It was a lot of hardship. Uh, you know things you see in the movies and pictures. Yeah. So that was her experience of growing up, and she writes in her book "Suffering." My first experience of power were the Nazi jackboots on the street. The sounds of them mm. marching. Yeah, And, of course, for someone growing up, that would have been very scary. Uh, she, her family were uh, Lutherans, you know, the, the uh, German church. Sure. And she was also aware as she was growing up, when she got a little older, um, that the Christian churches in Germany, many of them had aligned themselves with Nazi socialism. Sure. And that's, of course, why... Um, Bart and Bonhoeffer began the Confessing Church. Yes. So she grew up in a very tenuous time, and that experience, and then what she saw in Germany after the war, the destruction and the rubble and the nothingness, really, she impacted her entire life and her theology. So from the very beginning, the suffering question is there, Mm -hmm. and from the very beginning the power of God is there yeah. as a question. Yes, especially in, she's also 
encountering the Holocaust to, well, as a German, yes? Yes. They did, she didn't know about it until after the event. Right. And she and the other young people of her time um, were aghast mm-hmm. that that had happened in Germany. Yes. And uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Dorothy Sola. Oh, you did? While I was working on my dissertation. Um, during the second year of work, that was a good time to meet her because then I knew what to talk about. And I had read this in one of her books, but she sat across me eating cereal. <laughs> and she looked right at me and she said, we, we asked our mothers and our fathers and the people in the town and the shopkeepers, didn't you know that the trains were taking people, taking the Jews to Auschwitz and... Dachau and all the other... I mean, didn't you know... How could you not know this? Yeah. Didn't you see the flames or, or feel... Didn't you smell the the smoke? Yeah. And uh, that's another thing that just... She carried with her her entire life. And her generation, um, certainly herself and Johann Baptist Metz and Jürgen Moltmann, the three of them founded political theology. Mm-hmm. They're all contemporaries. Especially, I think, Zola had this um, feeling of collective guilt. Yeah, yeah. She, she definitely had a feeling of collective guilt. Now, obviously, she was s- smaller when this happened, but that she carried that with her her whole life. How could this culture that I grew up with, you know, uh, Goethe and Beethoven and all these incredible figures, how could this culture have capitulated like this? Yes. And how could Christianity, the Christian churches, have capitulated? Yes. You know that famous picture? Mm. There's a famous photo of, in in the front of a, 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 I presume it's a Lutheran church, but I'm not sure. It's a Protestant church. And there are two um, Nazi soldiers and then three um, ministers or bishops and they're all, you they're know, all doing have, the Heil. They're all doing the salute. Yeah. The, the Heil salute. Yeah, that's a that's in most books that you read about the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. She coined the term Christofascism to yes. describe this, right? <laughs> one, <laughs> thing she, about, <laughs> one thing about Dorothy Seller, she does not mince her words. Yeah, and of course, I mean, and and in her entire life, she was very afraid that fascism would show its head again. Yeah. After the and she actually felt that it was showing its head again mm-hmm. in the decades following the war. Yeah, that makes sense. Does she? Uh, is she? She's with Moltmann and Metz. Does she stay within the Lutheran tradition? Uh, after well, she grew up. She went to school, higher education, um, and she decided. After she had studied somewhat uh, and come to grips with what had happened during the war, that she she would call herself a a Christian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, she did not align herself with a particular church. Right. And I think it's very. If I'm going to describe her to someone now, I would say she was a radical Christian. Mm-hmm. She's also a Marxist. She's mm-hmm. also a socialist. She's yeah. a Christian Marxist. Christian. So so she was a Christian. Mm-hmm. And. Um, her uh, second husband uh, had been a Benedictine monk. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So I think she learned mo- some things about Catholicism 
that she didn't know right, by being married to him. Yeah. One thing I, I do want to say, if you don't mind. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> that her, her generation, uh, when they were in their, their 20s, um, were very despondent, mm. okay? Uh, it was, there was a lot of atheism mm-hmm. that was rising up in Europe, a lot of agnosticism, a lot of nihilism. Yep. So she really struggled with that, and I think it's safe to say she was very de- depressed with that. And the philosopher who really got her out of that was Soren Kierkegaard. Oh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, she read uh, his writings on anxiety and dread. Yes. And he defines dread and anxiety as freedom's appearance before itself as possibility. Mm-hmm. And he felt that anxiety is a moment that changes one mm. and drives one to conversion. And I find it fascinating, you know, that this Danish philosopher pulled her out of this dread and anxiety because he gave her permission to have the feelings. Yeah. It was, I mean, she was supposed to have those feelings. It was, you know, Germany was was decimated and, and people didn't know what to cling to anymore. So she wrote, I presented myself to anxiety huh. and I discovered an inner need for God. Fascinating. So... She moved from despair as a very young person yes. to a realization, you know, she needed God, she wanted God, and she was also at that point moving into uh, this understanding that theology is done in conversation with the society that you are living in. Right. She has a great um, <laughs> thing she writes... Every morning, do this. Open the Bible with one hand and the newspaper with the other, which is, of course, what I've done my entire life. Yes. And, and she is saying there has to be a conversation between the two, and one impacts the other. And that really is, I think, at the heart of political theology, that you search the, the social landscape and you watch for where it cries out for theology. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite lines of her. Watch for where it cries out for theology. Fascinating. She connected with Jürgen Moltmann, who's a reform theologian. Yeah. He is still living. And Johann Baptist Metz, Catholic priest, who died about two years ago. Mm-hmm. It was actually Metz who used the term political theology in uh, either 65 or 66 in a uh, conference. And Zola was always interested in politics and what was going on, and um, so it was natural for her to be with these other two Germans and ask these political questions and bring their faith to that conversation. Right. She developed her theology in dialogue with her politics. Um, And political theology acknowledges that the modern world has become secularized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same thing that Rahner faced, actually. Right. He didn't use the same uh, theological or philosophical language. Sure. But he was, uh, with, with his transcendental Thomism and, you know, his idea of looking to the horizon mm-hmm. and asking the questions, uh, he, he was really trying to um, put forth a method that would allow 
the person who said, I don't believe in God, to have a conversation with the person who says, I do believe in God. Right. The other thing I think is really important for Sola is that the reality of the Holocaust colored everything yeah. in her work, every single thing. That Her lens was what happened to her as a child and what she saw in Germany and the reality of the Holocaust. I mean, yeah. she was mortified that that happened yeah. in, her, in her nation. And as many in that time uh, were doing, and of course, Moldman was doing it in the Crucify God, right. how do we have a theology after Auschwitz? Yes. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I should I jump back here in my own life. The first course I ever had at Fordham when I was studying for my PhD was a seminar on suffering. Ah, uh, yeah. And suffering is the doctrine of God question. Right. And I knew from day one, it was really astounding that whatever work I focused on in the future, I wanted it to have to do with suffering in some way. Sure. And then I did really want hope to work on a woman, you know. And um, then the cherry on the cake, as I say, was I got to write about mystical theology because Dorothy Sola was a big fan of Meister Eckhart and every single practically book that she wrote, he's in it. That's fascinating. So does she bring then together this mystical theology with political theology? She what? will. She will. And the other uh, lens that we have to talk about yeah. for all of this, everything is really connected with Dorothy Sola, sure. is her critique of God's omnipotence. Mm -hmm. Because when she talked with the folks about you know, why didn't you stop these trains from going mm -hmm. to Auschwitz? Why didn't you do something? She realized that people had become apathetic. Yeah. And she feels that the one of the reasons that apathy thrives is because people sit back and say, well, you know, God's omnipotent. Uh, God can take care of this. Ah, ah, ah. So, and so she makes... Fate in a way. She yeah. makes a critique from day one mm. <laughs> on... What does it mean that God is omnipotent? Mm -hmm. And how, are we, how should we really talk about the power of God? Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's, that's important. And I realized as I was doing my work that I had a really an aha moment. I mean, this was huge. <laughs> <laughs> I was like on my knees saying, thank you, thank you. Yeah. I realized that I knew, she, knew I was going to work with her theology of God. You know, you need a doctrine when you write a dissertation. Right. Yeah. And I was always interested. That's my big doctrine, the theology of God. In the 1970s, Dorothy Zola approached her questions about God's omnipotence through the lens of suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, she approached that question, her critique. She made her critique through the lens of God language. Yeah. And in the 90s, when I was doing my work, she was making that critique through the lens of mysticism. Interesting. And, you know, I was looking at them separate. I mean, I was looking at all this material, and then I had this moment where it was like, this is, this is, she was always doing the same thing, mm. always making the same critique. But in every decade of her life, it went through a different lens. Sure. And that was huge for me because, number one, it gave me the chapters for my dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and it gave me a, a real frame with which to do my work. The other thing I want to uh, point out, if that's okay yeah, with yeah. you, yes. she, uh, she became extremely well-known in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, she never 
was invited to teach in uh, higher education in Germany. Mm. And she and many others, particularly women, felt that um, the, the German school system wasn't really ready for someone like Dorothy Sola. Sure. That's why she ended up teaching at Union Theological Seminary for 10 years, half a semester each year. Oh, interesting. Because they appreciated her, America. <laughs> but anyway, she it was extremely well uh well-known in Germany. As a matter of fact, after she died in Cologne, they dedicated a square to her, the Dorothy Sola Platz. Oh, yes. But she helped create what she called political night prayer. So she and others who were concerned about where Germany was going after the war, and this actually this political night prayer happened in the 70s, late 60s, 70s. Yeah. Um, Faithful people, you didn't have to be a Christian, mm -hmm. you know, um, gathered at night to pray together and to have political conversations. Yes. Oh. And uh, it became incredibly popular. I have a slide in one of my PowerPoints of a picture that was taken um, in the church when it was taking place. It was, I think the church was built for. 300 people, there were like a thousand people in it. Mm -hmm. Wow. And it became very popular. Uh, but it also made people very nervous because they were blending politics with faith. Sure. And this was like, so the format was prayer and then com political conversation. Then, was it like lecture and, or? No, it was uh, all different people talking and sharing and then action steps. Oh, interesting. Um, and that did make they and um, it just made me very sad when I found out about it. People turned on them. Some people who participated uh. were fired. She received hate mail. Her children were spat at in the street. Oh wow! So that was that was an outgrowth of her uh, faith, along mixed with her political critiques. That makes sense. Now, in these meetings, does she was she a were they organizing? Was this sort of uh, advancing? Yeah, they were, oh, yeah, they were organizing. Yeah. They were organizing. Um, you said, you described her as a Marxist, so was this like a... Uh, well, she, after the war, the, there existed a Christian Marxist dialogue in yeah. Europe. Okay. Yeah. And um, she had many friends who were devout Marxists. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say Dorothy swallowed the Marxist pill entirely, but she appreciated their critique Absolutely, of yeah. what was happening to the people, the yeah. poor people. Mm -hmm. yeah, I remember when I was having breakfast with her, uh, she said that two things um, were very difficult for those of us who thought. She said two things were difficult for those of us who thought that Marxism had much to bring to the table. Right. And one was when the um, Russian tanks came into Prague right. to in 68 to do, uh, destroy the Prague Spring. Sure. Mm. That was a real blow to yeah. her. And then the other one was um, the uh, violence in Central uh, America yeah. you know, in the 1980s. Yeah. And, you know, you, I could tell uh, when she was talking about that that she was sad. I mean, she was... Yeah. And the other... Oh, there was a third one. After the Berlin Wall came down mm -hmm. and people went into the Stasi buildings and realized uh, what 
had happened and how people had been encouraged to turn on other people, that was another sort of nail in the coffin. Sure. So she did, um, (laughs) I should really say this, when she came to Union Theological Seminary to teach, she was uh, invited by the faculty. They came over to Germany, met with her, found out about her. She arrived as sort of a a Marxist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Beverly Harrison, who is the woman who facilitated my meeting her, she was a feminist ethicist, say that 20 times. (laughs) Um, She told me that Dorothy arrived and, and, you know, the women at Union were chatting and and uh, they said to Beverly, you know, you got to do something about this Marxist stuff. Because <laughs> Dorothy has, wasn't using the term feminist. Right. You know. Interesting. So she she was looking... She really didn't come into that until she came to the United States. Interesting. And she was more focused on the class, class question yes. as a Marxist. Yes, yes, um, yes. Applying this, yeah. Right. That's very interesting. So um, they sort of educated her. Uh, when she was at Union Theological. She loved being in the United States, um, but then she, after 10 years, got really uh, lonely of not seeing her husband half a year. She also was exposed to Harlem and the whole culture in Harlem. And the same thing happened with Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was enamored of the music in Harlem, the culture, the churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a very liberating experience for him, and it was a very liberating experience for Zola. Yeah. And she connected with the with Daniel Berrigan, uh, Dorothy Day. Yeah. Um, Fascinating. I'd love to be in the room with her and oh. Dorothy Day meeting. That's, a, that's really interesting. <laughs> you know, they, they both have a lot of um, qualities that are the same. Yeah. I mean, Dorothy, so a very tiny lady. I think probably Dorothy Day. I mean, little little wisp of a thing. Yes. You know? But... The, it's like meeting an electric wire yeah. that's going <laughs> all it's like flying all over the room right you know yeah, it's yeah. like whoa yeah <laughs> actually i have a funny story if you don't mind oh of course you know i i had breakfast with her and then i was invited to a gathering at union theological seminary to honor her like a dinner potluck dinner i brought the wine yeah and then i went up to um episcopal divinity school to see her at a conference Mm-hmm. So here we are. We're going to say the Our Father before the meal. So we say that we're all holding hands. And at the, now you've got to remember my age. I was, my group was too young to be drafted during Vietnam. Okay. Huh. At the end, everybody puts their fists in the air and goes, Viva la Revolution. Huh? And I'm saying, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm with a group of hippies. <laughs> you know, but. You know, they've all been involved in the peace movement, anti-Vietnam, war. You know, I was like, whoa, this little time warp I'm hearing. Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) Was she into the resistance, or how does she think of that? Well, she connects the word resistance to her her work. Yeah. Um, uh, When you resist, you don't... I mean, she wasn't into throwing bombs and, you know, being violent or anything like that. Sure. It's a it's a it's a personal resistance, and it's being in a movement, you know, that will call a spade a spade and yeah. say, no, you cannot plant the nuclear warheads here in Germany. Yeah. Um, and she even uh, all, all everything she did with regard to suffering and God language and mysticism, she saw as a form of resistance to things that 
made life difficult for people or um, she was challenging certain things in theology that she thought were oppressive. Yes, yeah, so she's, she's resisting power, the, the mm-hmm. boots on the pavement yes, again. Yes, um, always resisting power. That's, that's um, <clears throat> and is that, would you say how this translates from, like, how her political theology is characterized as a resistance to power? You're, you talk about the lens being um, a critique of omnipotence. Yes. And, and that seems connected to this idea of resisting power. Is this what her, what was, was the sort of shape of her political theology, if you will? Well, I think the I think going to the suffering question uh, first yeah, is, sure. is a good place to go with this. Yeah, that's good. Um, she was, and and I actually personally agree with her. She really believes that God suffers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, and that God does not lose God's godness because God suffers. Mm-hmm. And she does say, when you look at Jesus on the cross, you see you see God suffering. But she um, wanted to speak about a God who was very uh, relational, mm-hmm. all right, who was not far away, yeah. utterly transcendent, mm-hmm. all right, um, a God that uh, suffered with. Yeah. Uh, one example that she uses, and, and so many people use from Elie Wiesel's book Night, mm-hmm. is when uh, the, the small Elie Wiesel and others are watching people being hung hung in the prison, <clears throat> and there's a little boy who won't die quickly because mm-hmm. he has a small neck, mm-hmm. and he's flailing around sort of like a fish on a hook, mm-hmm. and out of the crowd comes the line, where is God? Mm-hmm. And someone says, God is there on the gallows. Mm-hmm. So um, Vise, Ellie, um, Dorothy Sola uses the Jewish term Shekinah mm-hmm. to talk about that child, that the Shekinah was present there. And she's using the Hebrew term because it's a Jewish child. But for Sola, God is right here in our suffering. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge question after the Second World War. I mean, how do you do theology after Auschwitz? Yeah. So she resists theologically in... She resists the God of metaphysics quite forcefully. Yeah. She she really resists the idea that God is there and we're here and, you know, God is not impacted by our suffering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She uh, That God is distant from it and that God loses some of God's godness if we say God is impacted by our suffering. Right. That's, uh... You know, she would write the image of the all-powerful God does not survive after Auschwitz. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that was the work that so many theologians were doing back yeah. then. How do you, um, how do you, how do you say God is impassable? <laughs> yeah. In light of what you saw in those camps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, she would say God was right there. Yeah. Now, she will work that out, I think, successfully, in her work on mysticism. Ah. Yeah. Um, the God language piece is important for her, but I, I am not um, comfortable calling Dorothy Zola a feminist theologian. Okay. She's not a feminist theologian, as women are feminist theologians. She came to appreciate that 
that God language needed to be more expansive. Sure. And she also believes, and I think rightly so, that the mystical tradition gives you new images for God mm-hmm. um, that are actually not familial. Right. You know. So, but I wouldn't. I would never call her a a feminist um, theologian. And of course, again, making the connection between her uh, concern about power and the fact that people became apathetic, and she feels that when people talk about God as not able to suffer with us, that just enhances people's apathy. Yeah. Why, why should I get involved? If God is unmoved, why should I care? Mm-hmm. Now, when she moves into the area of mysticism, you see her working out, talking about the mystical journey, how can suffering impact God? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and she, of course, will go to the work of uh, Meister Eckhart to help her. That makes sense, yeah. And I just want to clarify: when you say she's not a feminist theologian, it's more that this isn't her. She's focus. not really using the feminist method. She's in her not work. using. Yeah. No, her method is the liberation theology method. Yeah. Uh-huh. Praxis, analysis. Mm-hmm. Meditation, which is where going to the tradition, going to the Bible would come. Yeah. And more praxis. Yeah. That's right. that's her method. Right, right. Praxis analysis, and this is Medi- praxis in, in terms of Do, uh, critical analysis yeah. of social structure yes. and the way yes. people are using language yes. and how it plays out and yeah. relations and all. But prayer but but when she says meditation, mm-hmm. she means um, that's where you go to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where you go to the tradition, you know, and find things there, and then you go back to praxis. Now, it's not totally different from feminist method, but she's not really making the deep feminist critique. Yeah. It's not really what she's about. She's not focused on that. She's focused on the broader... And nobody calls her really a feminist theologian. She's a political theologian. She's a book, yeah. Yeah. Who became liberated (laughs) (laughs) as a woman when she came to the United States. I mean, she was always a liberal, you know what I mean, but theologically. Well, it's just a broader... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's interesting. And you you said for the the meditation part, uh, Meister Eckert is important for her. Yes, incredibly important. So could I say a few things yeah, about Yeah, please. Him? Yes, I'd love to hear I think this is, um, actually, this is the part of my work that allowed me to, uh, not allowed me, but propelled me into some more writing and also enabled me to go to England to give a talk about Zola's use of Eckhart at the Meister Eckhart Conference. Oh, right. That's wonderful. And then to write a chapter in the book. It, it wasn't the earlier work because that was older, mm-hmm. but the newer work uh, was her use of Meister Eckhart. Yeah, so she came into in the 80s and 90s? 90s. In the 90s. As okay. a matter of fact, uh, when I met her, which was 97, I think, she died in 2003. Mm-hmm. Her book, um, The Silent Cry, which, by the way, I'll tell you what she really thinks she doesn't like the translation of the <laughs> German. She it was um, it was about to be published. Mm-hmm. That's her. That was the book she always wanted to write about, uh, and she wrote all about different mystics, mm. including Eckhart and the mystical journey. That was her piece de resistance. Her last book was um, uh, the mystery of death, and she died two days after finishing it. Oh wow! Wow! So her husband published it. 
But she she was exposed to Meister Eckhart, I think, in ninth grade, which I was like, oh, my goodness. You know? <laughs> and he's a Rhineland mystic. Mm-hmm. And the Rhineland, of course, is the western part of Germany, the hills, you know, Riesling wine and all that. Yes. And much, much, much the same much terrain same as, as where we live where here. Where we live, yes. yes. Thanks for the finger legs. That's yeah. why I buy a lot of Riesling. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, he was a Dominican and there was a, a lot of a lot of interesting things were happening in Germany at that time. That was the rise of the towns, mm-hmm. and uh, Eckhart was known for preaching in the vernacular. Ah, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. for preaching in German. Mm-hmm. Well, people could actually understand him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also uh, so she she liked that because she saw that as a kind of resistance. Mm-hmm that he would say, you know, the people should know what I'm saying. He was also a spiritual director to the a group of women called the Beguines. Are you familiar with the Beguines? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, you can see their homes in uh, Bruges, Belgium, their Beguinage. Tell us more about them, though. Yeah. They were lay women. Mm-hmm. They were not religious women. They uh, lived very poorly. They actually did wear um, distinctive clothing. Sure. They lived in these small little uh, houses that were connected, but they were living singularly. And they did uh, corporal works of mercy. I really don't know if they were organized. You know, I, I don't, there wasn't a, a rule. There wasn't a constitution mm-hmm. like in religious life. So they were very free. Yeah. And they were not connected uh, doctrinally to the church. Mm-hmm in any way, shape, or form, which is what ultimately caused them to be disbanded. Yeah. Because nobody could control them. (laughs) Um, They were very dominant in Cologne, of course, where Sola was born. There were men called the Bagards. One of their uh, women was um, lost her life. Yeah. Uh, She was accused of of heresy. Oh, wow. And Eckhart uh, connected with them. And uh, he, his, Eckhart was very much an apophatic theologian. Mm-hmm. To progress in the spiritual life, you had to more and more rid yourself of God. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, has, was misinterpreted by the church at that point in time because he wasn't saying, throw God out of your life. Right. He was saying that you have to really... Uh, empty yourself more and more so that God can fill you. And this connects the soul on the God language part. So more that get you, rid of the, you, you have to get rid of the, your false conceptions? Yes, your false conceptions. It's actually, it's negative theology. It's yeah. apophatic theology as opposed to cataphatic. And when in Zola's work in God language, she is drawn to that because she's saying, well, when we create too many images for God, we're actually maybe losing the essence of God, and we're looking more at our images. Mm-hmm. We're making idols out of our images. Right. And so she really gravitated to Eckhart's um, negative theology, his apophatic theology, because she felt that that is what really would facilitate your getting closer to God and, and going deeper with God. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> And she again felt that um, she felt that he and the Beguines were resistors mm-hmm. in the fact that they didn't 
fit the mold that they were supposed to be in, uh, yeah. but they did and wrote what they felt they should be doing. And is this like, I'm trying to connect this epithetic theology with her other work and the lenses you've described. I can see that if she's looking at the Christian structures, the concrete Christian structures of her time, and mm. seeing that in all of their human beauty, including their connection to Beethoven and Goethe and all that, um, German culture, they led ultimately to unbridled, uh, vicious power. Yes. And she is critiquing that power and the way that our conception of God could be sometimes bound up in those yes, terms. Yes, very definitely. And then yeah. something like an epithetic theology... Removes that. Yeah, where you're, you're, you're saying what can't be said. Yes. Rather than participating in the language game of yes. what we do say. Very good. Is that <laughs> That's exactly right. I like how you did that. Now, the thing that she most grasped yeah. about Eckhart was this, what's the term, sunervarum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I have to say that when I uh, learned about this, I, I, it's just, it made such an impact on me personally. Um, and it made a tremendous impact. It really, it really helped Zola uh, live her life. Yeah. As a re- person who resisted things politically. Yes. It yes. really was a key. In some ways, it saved her mm-hmm. when her protesting wasn't bearing fruit mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. She, fruit that she couldn't see. Yes. So um, to li- it's, it's the idea of living without a why. Mm-hmm. And when you live in the spirit of Sunarvaram, you live in the present tense. Mm-hmm. You perform your deeds without asking why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Or wherefore is going to go? Well, you, I mean, you should know why you're doing it, but you, you know, you don't dwell. You're not dwelling on why am I doing this? Why am I doing? You're doing what you believe is right. You have no consequences. No, you don't calculate the outcome, mm-hmm. and you don't calculate uh, the benefit for you. Mm-hmm. You, you actually become. She, she feels that when you stop asking the why question, you become freer. Mm-hmm. You tap into what you really want to do, and you do not focus on results. She's looking for a, a purity of action. Mm-hmm. 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 And see, this makes so much sense that this would impact her, and she would carry this in all her writing, because she's a political theologian. You know, she's resisting things that she feels are are wrong in right. society uh, and in theology. And after a while. Again, when you don't see the results of your work, she became very down in the dumps. Sure. Um, you live in the now. And uh, there's a German word, gelassenheit, which means to relinquish and abandon and surrender to God's will. Mm-hmm. So that's part of Sunovarum, of not clinging to what you're doing, yeah. but trying to surrender what's happening to God so yeah. that God can do something with it. It's a letting go. So it's a, it's, I'm curious how this connects with her critique of God's omnipotence and an apathy, right? So Mm -hmm. if we're, 
doing what's right in the present moment as an act of resistance resistance and offering that up to God mm-hmm. for the ultimate result and leaving aside the consequences, right? Yes. Um, how is that different from saying, well, God's in control, so, you know. I, I think it is different. I'm just I'm just trying to connect these two things, you know. <laughs> well, <clears throat> you're inviting God in. Mm-hmm. You know, when you start to relinquish, when you start to remove you mm-hmm. from the question, you are in. You know, you are inviting God um, more and more into the the entire equation, right? Into, into how it's going to work itself out. Yeah, um, and you're not. She's not abdicating r- right and wrong. No, she's not no, advocating no. resistance. She's just saying, uh, no matter what comes of this, I'll right. actually stand for yes, um, and then leave the rest to the mystery. I guess yes. Um, when she. W- when she was really down in the dumps about this, a friend of hers reminded her of the building of the cathedrals mm-hmm. in Europe. Mm-hmm. And she said, now, think about all the, the just regular folks, particularly the stonemasons mm-hmm. who built these cathedrals, who in their entire lifetime, maybe they only carved a rose. Mm-hmm. 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 And if you look online, oh, a lot of cathedrals have these little roses on it. Mm-hmm. And so they spent their whole life uh, doing these beautiful roses, knowing that they would never live to see the cathedral finished. Mm-hmm. And um, that's Sundarvaram. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're called, that was what you were called to do mm-hmm. in that lifetime. And yeah. you did it, and you did it well, and you did it in the present moment. And you didn't stop because you weren't going to see the end of the cathedral. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Zola also came across uh, the writings of a mystic, Angelus Silesius. Mm-hmm. His real name was Johannes Scheffler. He died in 1677. And um, in one of his writings, um, he has this little sort of poem line. The rose knows no why. It blooms because it blooms. It looks not at itself, and it asks not if you can see it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, what she was trying to do as her life progressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's beautiful. Uh, it dawned, you know, it dawned on me uh, while I was first um, learning about all this. I thought about, I love roses. And then I thought about looking at a dozen roses and then one rose. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I prefer the one rose mm. because you you just see it in the totality of itself. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. doesn't get lost in all the other roses. Mm-hmm. And it sits there. And I think the rose does this. There's something stately about a rose. Mm-hmm. It's there and it's like, here I am. And this is what I'm doing as the rose. I am blooming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was made to bloom and I'm going to bloom. And while I'm blooming, I'm not going to wonder about 
why I'm blooming? I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do. Bloom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what she finally came to uh, later in her life. That, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm going to bloom who I am as Dorothy Solo and yeah. do what I need to do. And it's okay if I never see the fruits of all this resistance that I've been going through. It makes a lot of sense when you think about someone who's focused on praxis, focused on political mm-hmm. theology, mm-hmm. focused on creating a, a social movement yep. around that, and then uh, and then being disappointed, as you said, uh, for life is somewhat framed by disappointment. Um, yes, by Auschwitz on the mm-hmm. on the front end, and then by the failure of what she perceived as the failure of Marxist movements mm-hmm. um, on the other end. I could see how this would really resonate with her. And it, um, I've, it's no surprise that the book she always wanted to write happened at the end of her life. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. And so I would like to uh, talk about how she framed the, mis- the, the mystical journey into God because this, uh, toward the end of life, I think is the way she finally worked out how God suffers. Mm-hmm. The mystical journey is always, the word journey has always been used in Christian spirituality mm-hmm. uh, about the movement of the soul to union with God. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, the soul is going on this, this uh, inward journey and this journey uh, causes spiritual maturity. Mm-hmm. And, of course, God is calling the soul into this journey. So Zola sort of tweaks the traditional understanding of the um, journey to God because for Sola, the inward journey to union of God must become the return journey Mm -hmm. back into the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is a journey of resistance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So she talks about the first step of the mystical journey as the via positiva of amazement. Mm -hmm. And this is when the soul loves the beauty of the natural world, is amazed with how God moves in creation, is amazed with all that God does in people's lives, you know, Mm -hmm. just is is filled with joy for who God is. Mm -hmm. And then there's the via negativa, the letting go, This is uh, when the soul um, renounces things. This is very much sort of like the dark night of the soul. Yeah. You you see in the the dark night of the spirit and the senses, as John the Cross talks, things that you cling to, the idols that you have, things that get in the way of your relationship with God. So after this amazement, there is this purification, this via negativa. Traditionally, in the third step which would be the, the, the transformation and purification would lead to via unitiva, the mm-hmm. unity. This is where she makes the little tweak. She says that indeed we move to be united with God uh, and in that union with God, we come face-to-face with the mystical name for God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, the soul on its journey becomes united with God, and the name 
of God that is discovered, the mystical name is You Silent Scream. Mm. Now, the name of the book is The Silent Cry, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to steal Geshrei. But Zola sat right in front of me and said, it should be The Silent Scream. Yeah, that's more intense. (laughs) And I I suspect that the publisher publisher. may have said, you really want to sell a lot of these books? Well, we're not calling it The Silent Scream (laughs) as a mystical name for God. We're going to call it The Silent Cry. Now, in Zola's movement into union with God, the soul comes, sees that inside of God are the cries and screams of all the people in the world Mm -hmm. who are suffering. All the pain, all the heartache of humanity is there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the soul comes face to face with that. And then that's what where Sola says, but you don't stay there. You, the soul in in essence makes a U-turn and leaves that that heart of God and moves back out into the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to 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 praxis. Yes, to mm-hmm. actually do something, because she believed that all the mystics practice resistance, um, and I just think that's an amazing thing, uh, because. I think at, at this this moment of her life, she has succeeded in her way of mm-hmm. taking the suffering question mm-hmm. and the God language question, you know, mm-hmm. how do we name God, and the spiritual mystical journey, and she's molded it so that it really still is political theology mm. through her you know what I'm saying? It, it, she hasn't yeah. abandoned becoming a political theologian. No, not at all. Sister. No. She's taken the... Mis- now, when I was... Um, and this is in the, the chapter that I, I wrote about this. This is not the, the purest way of looking at mysticism. And this came up at my um, when I was defending my dissertation. I mean, I wasn't being attacked. Mm-hmm. But one of the examiners was saying... You know, are there going to be people who are going to resist what soul is? <laughs> and yes, yes. And I yeah. think Bernard McGinn might be one of them. Mm-hmm. Yes, very, very much so. But what I love about this is this mystical name for God. Because, okay, how does God suffer? Or where? how does this involve the power of God? Yeah. See, I think we need to reframe what it means that God is omnipotent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is not the power of the jackboots. It mm-hmm. is not oppression. Yes. It is the ability, because God is God, of taking into God's very self all the pain, all the suffering, you know, of of the created order. And sin is the cause of most of that, mm-hmm. we could say. And God transforms it. Mm-hmm. God does something with it. Um Moving just briefly to Jesus on the cross, mm-hmm. yes, Zola um, found in her life that that meditating on that was a very powerful spiritual experience for her. Mm-hmm. But again, she sees Jesus as a victim of the politics of his day. Yeah, that he is not sent to the cross by God. <laughs> that will not happen because that's that's the image of the powerful God sending. The son to the cross, mm-hmm, you know that mm-hmm. that that's like this is not the God I believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
this is Jesus willingly, you know, giving himself over to the politics of his day mm-hmm. and, and living without a why. Yeah, yeah, not resist, resisting by not resisting. Exactly. Or resisting nonviolently. Um, but how did, does she see then, um, and I know this is probably, well, I, what I'm curious about there is um, how God's love is portrayed then in the cross if God isn't involved. Because again, God, he, she doesn't, she could, can't stand what Moltman did because she thinks he separates, you know, his little Trinitarian two-step. He separates the persons. Uh-huh. She says that God is right there. Yeah. Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabatini. Yeah. God is, the, God is there. Yeah. God is totally with, crucified. Yes. Right. Totally with Jesus in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no separation. Okay. Interesting. So what I really, I mean, she is not the most systematic theologian. I mean, I had a lot of moments where I was like, Dorothy, would you just like do this systematically? Yeah. <laughs> step one, step two. In essence, I felt during my, and I still do with her, you're always putting the puzzle back together. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> but you see, that's what I love about her. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, that's what I love about the field of theology when you read many different theologians. I mean, it was, I love working on this. Mm, yeah. I still do. Dr. Hawkins, you're a um, sister. Uh, yes, I belong to the Sister Servants of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, Scranton, Pennsylvania. Oh, very good. Because there's three groups, so yeah. I have to say Scranton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> you, um, how is this, how does this resonate with you in terms of your vocation? It's interesting. Um, we were founded by uh a sister who happened to be half Haitian. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were, uh, our other founder was a redemptorist. Mm-hmm. And so really our our spirituality is very redemptorist, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the redemption. You know, and uh, the great uh, redemptorist theologian is Alf, um, Liguori, mm-hmm. yeah, who is a moral theologian, yeah, whose moral theology is is very much about love. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I did not know about Dorothy Zola until I was in my 30s, you know. But when I look back on what I believe, um, is really as at the heart of, of why I'm doing what I do. It's it's totally about a love connection with God and how I can bring I can bring that forth into the world mm-hmm. through my teaching mostly, mm-hmm. um, and how I can talk about redemption, not in a, a punitive way, right, or a negative way, but about you know uh, about God offering love to you mm-hmm. in situations where there is suffering and there is depression and there is this feeling of total emptiness Yes, and how God can... And I think people desperately need to hear that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I try to do that with my students uh, to let them know that they are a beloved daughter and son of God, mm-hmm. no matter what, and that they have value because of that and that uh, God is not going to judge them harshly um, I mean, we, we all sin, we all do things that we're ashamed of, mm-hmm. but that God will 
be with you in that and help transform what's going on in you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and take your pain and work with you in it mm-hmm. and be with you in it. And, of course, that includes the whole trend. I mean, you know, it's the triune God who's doing this. Mm-hmm. But um, I really feel that that is part of our IHM spirituality. We don't necessarily walk around talking about that. Yep. <clears throat> but the, I was drawn to my congregation because people were happy. Mm-hmm. There was mm-hmm. joy in these yeah. women. People were joyful. They were happy. They were, and I've been happy and joyful in it. And I think at the root of that is this relationship I have with God. Mm-hmm. And I feel incredibly, you know, I was a French major, and I love French, everything French. But I really wanted to move into the field of theology. Mm-hmm. And that's what I got my master's in and my PhD in. And I think to myself, Nancy, how lucky and blessed are you? You think about God all day long. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Yeah. I was at a meeting once and we were in small groups and someone who I think was in the field of math or something was saying, you know, oh, I, I need to find more time to be with God. And I'm like, hey, I'm with it 24-7. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never not without God. But I but you know, to be able to to work in the field and grow in the field and, and it, it my spiritual life has been so enhanced. Yeah. I say to the students, the better you pray, the better your theology, the better your theology, the better you pray. Yeah. I mean it's it's been a tremendous gift. And to do this work on and and really learn about this woman and meet her and it, it, it really also speaks to me through my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's just been a wonderful thing to do. It's inspiring to learn about. And, um, you know, I really appreciate your... And she was not perfect. She never yeah. pretended to be perfect. Sure. She could irritate people to no end. Yeah. <laughs> but when you read, uh, there was a big tribute to her uh, after she died. It was, actually, I was at it. It was the Ameri- at the American Academy of Religion. Mm-hmm. And people spoke. Her friends spoke. She, she, um, she actually was the most read German theologian. Her small books. <laughs> really, that's yeah. amazing. She didn't for the people. For yeah, the people, and it sort of reflects Eckhart. The people she wanted to read her books were the people. Who are the people in the, in the, who did? Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. I, I was not familiar with her until I met you. Most Catholics are not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, uh, that really, when Beverly Harrison met me, I think she was sort of bowled over by the fact that a Catholic and a religious wanted to focus on Turkey so <laughs> We got to invite this woman to this party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Uh, My pleasure. It's lovely. It's wonderful to talk about her and reponder her and uh, let her speak to me. If you enjoyed this podcast with Dr. Nancy Hawkins, please check out our podcast with Dr. Matthew Kuhner, another theologian here at St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry, on Hans Urs van Balthazar.